Welcome to the AlphaList podcast. I am your host, Toby. AlphaList is a closed community with over 400 CTOs who share their knowledge and experience in a Slack space and at events. With this podcast, we want to give our members and interested parties insights into the thoughts and ideas of top CTOs. If you're interested in becoming a member of the community, please visit alphalist.com to find out more on how to apply. This episode is kindly supported by Fastly, the biggest challenger in the CDN market. Fastly is pushing ahead the technical boundaries and is, from my perspective, the best solution on the market. Fastly is known as one of the key drivers of the Edge Cloud movement. Well-known customers of Fastly are Shopify, The New York Times, Reddit, GitHub, and many, many more. If you want to try it all with first-class support, just go to fastly.com slash alphalist. Welcome to the AlphaList podcast. I am your host, Toby. And today with me on the podcast is Cheryl Hung. She's VP Ecosystem at the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, in short, CNCF. And the special thing about this episode, actually, that um, I'm speaking to the, my first female guest on the podcast. I'm a very proud. It's a bit sad, to be honest. I want to change that. So um, if you maybe, Cheryl, have a few recommendations or other listeners have recommendations for female guests, please tell me, please approach me. Um, so uh, talking about CNCF, um, it's a sub-organization of the Linux Foundation, which was founded in 2015. And um, the idea is um, that uh, the, the ecosystem um, of container technology has to be pushed by this foundation, or that's the idea that this foundation pushes um, container technology, such as Docker. Um, it has, I think, around 200 members. Um, And I think that's exactly your job, right? Uh, to to uh, manage the the whole ecosystem of open source projects that are in uh, in the CNCF Foundation, and also get new members and stuff like that. Is that is that correct? Um, so slight. Um, first of all, hi Toby. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Um, it's really great to be here, especially as the first female guest. Um, secondly. The way that CNCF is structured is we have the open source projects, so Kubernetes, Prometheus, Envoy, um, many others, and we've hit just over 100 of those projects as of July 2021. And then separately to that, we have the members. So those are the companies that fund the organization and keep it going. And of those members, we have over 600 now, in fact, wow. and then um, about 150 of those are end user companies um, and they form the end user community, which I lead. So the end users are companies who are adopting cloud native like Spotify and MasterCard and Apple, but they don't sell any kind of cloud native services or products themselves. So that's generally how we split up the, the foundation. And those companies partly also contribute open source, right? I saw, I think Zalando is a member. I used to, uh, to work for Zalando, actually. 
Um, oh, nice. And Zalando are great. Yeah, I guess yeah. I guess they also contribute, right? They contribute uh, as, as they have a very nice cloud team. Yes, they're very um, really good people over at Zalando. Um, yeah, we really encourage all of the companies, but especially the end user companies, to be a part of the open source community in whatever way they can be. So some companies are um, a bit further down the line, a bit more advanced, a bit more mature. So they are the ones who are typically contributing directly to the open source projects, um, as in submitting pull requests on GitHub and actually being part of the open source projects themselves. But we also really welcome the stories, case studies around companies that are using cloud native and what are the challenges they ran into? How did they overcome them? You know, what would they recommend to other people? So we just try and encourage people to get involved in whatever way they can. And talk about what they do and how or just contribute code, right? Um, so um, it's it's quite an interesting job, um, especially if you if you look at uh, like the, the the typical question, like as a as a female, how did you as a girl, how did you end up in that job? What is what is your? I'm interested. What is your your nerd path? I mean, um, <laughs> it's, yeah, kind of unusual. Yeah, yeah, I think you could say that. Um, I don't think I realized how unusual it was at the beginning, maybe. Um, I was probably, I was a teenager, probably 13, 14, when I decided that um, I really wanted to be a software engineer at Google. <laughs> that was my, that was my goal. I knew from pretty early on. And I was, at that age, I was, you know, playing around with JavaScript and building terrible web pages and, and that sort of thing. Um, but I really you know, Google was this really up and coming startup at that time. It was really hot. It was doing all these cool things with technology. And, um, and I knew they gave you free food and I was like, cool, this sounds like a company that I want to work at. Um, so everything I did from then on was really with the goal in mind that I wanted to go work at Google, be a software engineer. So I studied computer science and, um, I was lucky enough to join Google at the age of 21. I spent my five years there working on Google Maps, building backend features, mainly as a C++ programmer, and then a um, little bit later moving into program management as well. So for me, it was it was always very clear that I really wanted to go into a technology go into technology as a career and be a software engineer. Um, after Google, in fact. Uh, I left Google in 2015, and that was just about when containers and Docker and Kubernetes, Kubernetes a couple of years later, were starting to come up again. And uh, because at Google, I was using Borg, Borg was the internal version of what would later become Kubernetes. I was already very familiar with containers and building this kind of large scale infrastructure so once I left Google and I looked around at what else was out there, I decided that what I really wanted to do was bring that style of building large scale, reliable, distributed infrastructure out to the rest of the world and help other companies and help other people adopt it as well. But your job as of today is a bit less nerdy than at the beginning, right? I mean, you, if you started as C++ engineer, that's like kind of the nerdiest, almost the nerdiest thing you can do these days. <laughs> and then uh, you you ended up in management 
quite quickly. Do you every once in a while still still develop software? Um, I like to play with little things for myself. Um, I only build things, build projects for myself nowadays. And, you know, sometimes it is a bit sad. <laughs> you know, when you spend such a long time, you have this dream, you really work for it um, and you get that. And then after a while you start to think, okay, well, what is next? Because I can't, I can't stick with my 14 year old's dream forever. Um, you have to go and find something else that you can do, some other way that you can bring um, value to the world and do something useful in the world. So yeah, nowadays I, I see myself as um, kind of within the sphere of technology, for sure, still very technical. I still enjoy learning a lot about technology and playing with different things. But day to day, yeah, I don't code anymore. Yeah, but you're an, like an open source advocate, right? Um, and that is kind of a very cool job to have, right? Um, that you can convince others um, and also um, Every once in a while, I guess you're on a stage, um, which I think is very important for diversity as well. Um, I mean, it's 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 hard. We already discussed that in, in the pre-discussion we had um, to 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 to, mm. to actually for me to 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 get people into the podcast, but also to have role models. Right? It's very important. Um, and if you are hiding as a software manager somewhere, um, it's or software developer somewhere. It's 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 uh, maybe not the best that can be done for diversity. Um, I think that software engineers in general, not even talking about diversity, tend to have this feeling that we just need to focus on code. Mm -hmm. You know, as long as we build good stuff, you know, everything else is not as important, not important compared to building good code. Um, and. I made a very conscious move that I wanted to move into advocacy and I wanted to go out there and I wanted to present and I wanted to do a lot of public speaking. I wish we could be on stage. Obviously, I haven't done any of that in the last year. Um, but I do think it's really important for people to not only be able to build high quality software and do good work, but also to be able to communicate that to other people and to show off what they're doing. And when I was actually a a developer advocate formerly at a startup called Storage OS, I was looking around for different meetups that I could use to, to speak at. Um, and I found, I was looking for cloud native meetups in particular. And I found there was a cloud native Berlin and a cloud native Paris, and there wasn't one in London. So I thought, let me just start one and see if anyone shows up, see if anyone's interested in this. Um, so I just picked a date, like two months into the future. I didn't have speakers, didn't have a venue, didn't, you know, completely didn't exist at all. And the very first meetup that I ran, we had 110 people wow. show up. Wow, that's great. So I was like, okay, there's definitely interest here. There's, you know, definitely something, something that we can bring to the, to the community in London. Um, and then ever since then, I've run it for the last uh, four years. And I really, really encourage people to come up and speak. I encourage uh, diverse speakers. I encourage women. I encourage first time speakers because I do think it is really important for us to, as you say, to see these role models and to see other people up there who we can go, well, like, I think it would be cool if I could talk about what I'm doing. Um, 
often people are very nervous about it. So I try and tell them, you know, you just need to go out there and share your story. Mm. You don't need to be a world-class expert in every single technology mm. ever mm. before you can talk about it. Um, so it is something I'm very passionate about. That's great. That's great. I like it. Um, and you've, you've actually, you won an award by the end of last year. Um, I've, I, I read, um, the, the tech women 100 award. Um, that's also great, right? That you actually be like became a role model there as well. Um, and <laughs> I read that under your guidance, your community has grown by 90% year on year. I guess that's last year, right? Is that correct? Uh, over the last two years. Over the last two yeah. years. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, well, thank you. First of all, yeah, the, the tech women 100 was definitely a big honor for me to receive that award. Um, and secondly, it's kind of strange to me because I, I remember trying, I, I didn't really have any role models in that sense when I was, I suppose, studying and early in my career as an engineer. So it's a little bit strange for me now to think of this idea as myself as a role model. Um, but I really do try and reach out to people and say, you know, at the end of the day, we're all humans. We're all trying to do our best and trying to work hard and do what we can. So your role models are not like far away, distant people. They are people that you can talk to and you can get to know as well. Okay. Um, and how does your daily job look like? It's a bit hard to, <laughs> to imagine. <laughs> uh, probably like a lot of people's at the moment, which is email, Slack, meetings. Um, I think the what, what I try and keep in mind, my overall mission, as I said it for myself, is um, I want to make sure that end users can be productive and successful as they're adopting cloud native. So a lot of my time I spend with the community, talking to them, figuring out what are the issues that they're facing now, figuring out how I can, um, not, not that I try and solve them for people because CNCF is a vendor neutral, vendor neutral organization. Um, we specifically cannot say, you know, you should use this vendor over this vendor or use this product over this product. Um, but we do try and say like, okay, if you are a large company and you're looking at issues with, I don't know, um, running ML pipelines, then maybe I know another large company who's also running like ML pipelines. And maybe there are some things that you can discuss and figure out a common solution. So yeah, a lot of what I do is just managing, managing the different, um, kind of community trying to keep the industry moving forward, trying to keep the open source projects happy, the project maintainers. Uh, yeah, so it is a very different, very different work style from a typical programmer, engineer. I think um, like part of your work is also you, the, the tech radar that you that you hand out, right? Is that um, like telling, guiding organizations which tool is in which state and, and uh, how, and, and potentially useful for a company of a certain size or what is what is the idea behind that yeah tech radar is something that i'm actually very proud of uh, at cncf and the story of how it started is um about a year ago so q1 q probably q1 in 2020 
um, just as the pandemic was kicking off, really, um, I got some. I got talking to some people from the community. Some of them from end users. Some people on the technical oversight committee at CNTF. Some people on the governing board. And the thing that I kept hearing over and over again was, we really want to hear from end users what they really think about cloud native. Like, let's cut through the hype. Let's cut through the marketing. Like. What is the actual reality of cloud native? So this is actually quite a difficult answer, difficult question to ask because there's tens of thousands, I don't know, maybe even hundreds of thousands of companies now and hun definitely hundreds of thousands of people who are using cloud native. And how do you figure out how to condense all of their thoughts and what they're thinking about into something, into a format that's easy to understand and um, has some has uh, something kind of substantial behind it, right? It's not just opinion. It's not Cheryl's opinion of what's happening in cloud native, but it truly reflects the actual experience. So I did a lot of research around companies like um, Gartner and Forrester, the kind of reports that they put out. So the tech radar was a way to find out what to display, what techn technologies are the most mature, which ones are up and coming and which ones people are moving away from or, you know, they're starting to fade, fade away. Um, and to use the end user community that I run and survey them and ask them basically what this, what are their thoughts about certain different topics? So as I said, I'm very proud of what we've actually achieved with this. We've now run one, we, we publish one report every quarter. They take about 10 to 12 weeks to produce. So um, it takes us, we do about one, one every quarter. And the feedback that I've had from it is great. Like I've had companies say to, say to us like, well, when we're looking at, I don't know, database storage or when we look at um, continuous deployment, like we will use these radars internally with our own management to figure out what we should be using right now and what everybody else is using. So it's really seen great adoption and had great feedback. It's, it's actually great to see that coming from a foundation uh, as you are per, per definition neutral. Um, and yeah, I mean, Gartner is also kind of neutral um, I, I would, I would, I would think, um, but if you look at then like the, the review communities out there or review platforms out there, it starts just getting influenced by vendors and so on. And, uh, I like the idea to, or there's potential uh, for, for, for manipulation, uh, at least let's, let's phrase it like that. Um, and I, I like the idea of seeing that coming from an independent foundation. It's also difficult to get the true um, the true sense of open source from a company like Gartner because they're not they mainly focus on vendor tools and technologies. They don't focus as much on open source, and so that was one of the other goals with the CNTF technology radar was to understand you know you know how open source is it it gets massively complicated. There are thousands and thousands of tools now. And, and to try and really focus on the open source 
part of it. I mean, we include vendor tools as well, but to really illuminate how people really use open source. Um, and people should definitely check this out. By the way, you can go to radar.cncf.io and read all of our past reports. Okay, cool. Um, but but I think a lot of open source projects also are commercialized after a while, right? Um, I mean, looking at MongoDB yeah. or Elastic or others, um, uh, at a certain time, they, they started becoming publicly listed. <laughs> and, and this is not a bad thing. No, no, by the way. no, no it's this a good thing. A, it's a good thing, I yeah. think, because uh, yeah. sometimes you have to like form a professional organization around something. Um, and I, I think, especially if you look at those tools, I mean, Elastic, like the main contributor um, is still the founder of Elastic, I think, if you look at, at, at GitHub. Um, and I think it's it's natural that there has to be something economically, um, some 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 reward mm. for, for that um, because it's great software, right? Um, yeah. We tend to think of it at CNCF as making sure these open source projects are sustainable. So make sure that the people who work on it um, get paid, have a good lifestyle and can continue to work on the open source projects for as long as they can. Because if you go back, you know, 20 years ago, maybe even not that long, um, the vast majority of open source projects were one, two people working in their spare time in the evenings and the weekends. And it was a passion project. You know, they loved working on it. But at some point, some you can't throw infinite amounts of time into something that, you know, takes time away from other things. So, yeah, the way, the way that we think about it is the maintainers who are working on the open source projects um, typically form companies around them. Those companies capture some of the, commercialize it, capture some of the value. And then some of that value goes back into the next round of open source projects and supporting the next round of maintainers. Okay, so that is a, a great thing to do actually. Um, talk, speaking of containers, um, what, do you, what do you think about the, the, the future of containers? So how will it look like in, let's say five to 10 years from now? Wow, that is a long time, <laughs> five to 10 years. How long have containers been around now? Let's say since 2013, 2014? I think, I think around 10 years, right? Um, and I, I think like um, yeah. looking at that, that time span, it kind of developed. But if I look at, let's say, my, my Mac um, and uh, how, how Kubernetes for Mac uh, evolved or Docker for Mac especially evolved, it doesn't feel like like two big steps, right? Or two big jumps. What, what, what do you think will happen? Uh, will it be integrated at a certain time more deeply into the operating systems or what is, what is the next mm. step? Yeah. So first of all, um, a very interesting conversation that I've, or trend that I've seen is um, I now talk to university students who have never deployed software in anything other than a container. You know, for them, containers is not the new thing or an alternative way to do something. It is the only way mm. they know how to download software. You know, they get it from Docker Hub using the Docker command line, um, which I think is wonderful. I think is, yeah. is quite a surprise to us who've been 
been around and still think of containers as something that's um, maybe not new, but, you know, it's not the only way to do things. Uh, so I do think that is wonderful. I think it's a sign of the way of the future. Um, the other trend that I see is that containers are moving into more and more different areas. So right now, I would say if you're deploying something like a web scale application, you'll probably use containers for it. Um, even if you have some enterprise software that used to run on VMs or used to run on bare metal, it's actually not hard to move that into a container. So a lot of that work, I think, is easy and has already been done. Um, if you're talking about, say, running containers on um, IoT devices or on the edge, like that is still quite new, I think. And there's still a few years of, of growth left for containers into those kinds of areas. It's actually impressive that um, this happened, right? I mean, that if you own a Raspberry Pi and you install some home automation software, then most likely in the background, you have Docker um, and uh, it's all running in containers. The, that, uh, yeah, it's hard, it was hard to imagine five years ago. It's, it's astonishing. I mean, it's, it's really changed so fast. Um, I do feel a little bit for Docker, the company, because they did have this great technology. Um, it was founded around open source. And I think they struggled a little bit with properly monetizing and commercializing that. Um, but the value of the technology is definitely there. Just Docker as a company is not as hot as it used to be. Yeah, it's hard to monetize as, as it's mostly around like individual engineers um, and monetizing individual engineers is, is is relatively hard. I mean, and then you can go to the cloud providers and negotiate with them. And um, that's where it gets hard if you initially came up with a free software and so on, <laughs> I guess. Mm, that is true. Individual developers generally don't like to pay for software, surprisingly. Um, so yeah, it was always going to be difficult to get individual ones, individual people to pay And then, as you say, with the big cloud providers, negotiating with Docker is just, it was a different scale. You know, it's quite a challenge. And what, what do you think about Kubernetes in general? I mean, I guess, I mean, you are a Kubernetes foundation. Uh, the uh, CNCF was initially formed around, around Kubernetes, I, I think. Um, where do you see Kubernetes in a few years? So I love Kubernetes, right? First of all, let me, me as well. Me as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, and Kubernetes, I think, also has had an extremely fast um, explosion of adoption. Um, even three years ago, sort of 2018, 2017, there were still quite a few viable alternatives to Kubernetes. You know, people were looking at Docker Swarm and Rancho and, um, HashiCorp's Nomad and, and then different cloud providers quite often had their own managed services as well. And all of that has kind of faded away. And we are now left with Kubernetes is, is the base layer if you're running this kind of 
orchestrated platforms. Well, if you run locally, so, you sometimes still have Docker Compose, right? Because you can then mount your file system and so on. Do you think that will disappear as well or? Um, I, I don't think it will disappear. Um, let me, let me go back a little bit in time and tell a story about, um, Borg, which I think also applies to Kubernetes. Uh, we used to have this saying at Google that Borg makes it very difficult to run one of anything, but very easy to run 10,000 of it. And I think the same is true of Kubernetes. You know, if you need to learn Kubernetes, the complexity to learn it and to get onboarded and to build one application or one service is pretty high. You need to invest a lot of time. But then once you have it running once, you can scale it really easily. Um, so I think there is still that, there is still space there for something where you don't want to spend six months learning the concepts of Kubernetes and getting someone, um, you know, having spending a lot of time to learn the concepts before uh, you can start running something small locally. Mm -hmm. And you think that is also space that is soon filled up with Kubernetes as well? Um, because that is like also from my perspective, the, the, the learning curve is in a way still a large barrier, right? And that is the space which is which now cloud providers um, try to fill up with with platform as a service, which is in a way a competitor to Kubernetes um, in a lot of cases. Um, do you think this will be space that soon to be occupied by by Kubernetes? There's a couple of different initiatives which. Um, and a couple of different tools as well, like Minikube, which make it possible to run Kubernetes, a small Kubernetes cluster locally. But I don't think that actually running it is the difficult bit. I think that understanding the interactions and the different components, um, that I think will always take time, no matter, you know, no matter how fast it is to spin up a cluster on, you know, Google Cloud. Like you still need to understand what to do with it from then on. Yeah, right. That's in a way hard to understand that if you just want to run your WordPress locally, you need, I don't know, a pod, a few containers, um, a bridge to the database, uh, a service, mm. um, an ingress and so on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you need so much. Like. We've got to remember that for a lot of people, they're still very new to the idea of containers even, and Kubernetes is very, very, very new. So even as someone who's worked in this space for a while, I really definitely recognize there's a lot of complexity in, even in the early stages of Kubernetes, of running Kubernetes. And then kind of the further you go, the, the more complex it gets because now you have to add um, some kind of observability framework and you need to add uh, security to it and you need to figure out how to make your database highly available. And, you know, there's so many choices and so many things that you need to make a decision on. Yeah. 
This episode is proudly presented by Dell Technologies. They are a team of experts that helps you solving all your IT-related challenges and IT needs in your daily business and consult you in choosing the right end-to-end -end IT solutions or products. They offer IT technology solutions for companies of any size, tailored to their needs and have a huge product portfolio with IT solutions and know-how. They can help CTOs through providing end-to-end -end IT solutions, be it laptops, PCs, workstations, or server storage, cloud, and IoT solutions or financing. If you want to know more, please check the show notes to get a link. And as, as soon as you deal with, um, um, with databases, for example, um, as soon as, as, as your project is no longer ephemeral and uh, everything can be deleted and you have stayed, it, it gets harder, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I come from a, a storage background before I joined CNCF. I was at a storage startup um, that was building product called Storage OS. It was persistent storage for containers and Kubernetes. So I have a particular affection, shall we say, for um, for storage and running stateful applications. Um, actually, I joined that company in 2017, beginning of 2017. And I thought that within about 18 months, this would be a solved problem. And we're now four years later, and I would say it's still not a solved problem. So maybe I was optimistic at that time. Um, but I do think it, I've started to see more and more companies and organizations embracing running the stateful applications within their containerized infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, at a certain point, you have to say there's no alternative, right? I mean, you can still stick with bare metal, <laughs> but um, or use a platform, yeah. use a platform, obviously. Um, I mean, I, I used to say that, like, there is no such thing as a stateless application. You know, if you're doing something useful, you're going to have to store data somewhere. And that means you have to make a decision about it. You know, even if you've outsourced that to a cloud provider and said, I'm going to use, you know, RDS from um, AWS or something like that still comes with trade-offs and implications. So, yeah, you can't you can't assume that it's a really nice abstraction to say, You know, it can be ephemeral at the beginning, but at some point you still have to make a decision about storage. Yeah, that's also an interesting, let's say, misconception in um, modern trends that you see out there. For example, Jamstack, you have those frameworks mm -hmm. that just generate static web pages and it's all fine. It's all like blazingly fast, but as, but as soon as you need to, I don't know, write something, <laughs> it gets harder, right? <laughs> And right, yeah. I mean, um, my own personal blog, um, I run it on Jekyll and GitHub pages. And for static, anything static, it is fantastic. But for anything else that um, is not static, I end up integrating third-party services into it. You know, it's just not very well suited for anything yeah. dynamic. Yeah. And um, as, as soon as you integrate for third-party services, you can ask yourself, is it the right thing I do here? Or should I just stick to, I don't know, WordPress and Cloudflare? That would be much simpler <laughs> sometimes, right? <laughs> I think this is the uh, the nerd in me still. It's like, no, I built this. I can figure it out. <laughs> I um, I have affection for it, even though, as you say, WordPress and Cloudflare would probably be a nicer 
solution. Potentially, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I know that feeling. Yeah. I know that feeling. Um, and um, <laughs> if you if you look at cloud native, what, what what are the trends that you see rising in in the next in the near future? Um, I wrote a blog post about this recently, actually, which you can um, you can check out the whole thing on my blog, which is oichel.com, O-I-C-H-E-R-Y-L.com, um, where I was thinking at the beginning of 2021 about what, what should we expect for the next year, kind of divided the, um, I, I've made 10 predictions, dangerously, um, about cloud native. And I divided those into tech, technology, frameworks, and tools, um, into kind of DevOps, things around people and processes, and then um, ecosystem, so wider trends across businesses and across the industry. Um, so I definitely recommend, like, you should go check out the the top, the full list of the 10. Um, But the kind of underlying theme behind all of it is that cloud native deployments are getting more and more complex. Um, we're starting to see more specialization and we're starting to see cloud native move into areas like edge where previously we haven't seen very much of it before. Um, you, you mentioned edge now for the second time um, and Edge meaning like devices closer to the user. And we see like a lot of technology evolving there, like WebAssembly. Um, mm. Why do you think this is a, a complexity which is which is needed and which is trending so heavily? Yeah, so as you say, Edge refers to when you move computing closer to the user. So sometimes that is very, very close. That might be in the mobile phone that they're holding in their hand. Sometimes it might mean moving it to um, something which is, you know, 100 meters away, you know, something rather than a cloud, a centralized cloud data center, which might be thousands of kilometers away. And the reason that we do it is because it gives better user experience for the user, right? You know, you can, you can process things faster and get a better uh, response to the user. But the challenge of this is um, all the things that we have come to rely on, you know, reliable networks, um, being a, having security over, because you, know, you can control a physical data center, you can't control what happens on someone's device. Um, we lose all of these assumptions when we move towards an edge um, model. So, I would say basically to sum up for this, that the pressure is there to move to edge because it makes for better user experience. And fundamentally that is what people want. But um, the challenges of that mean that um, we could actually take advantage of some of the, the uh, concepts behind cloud native to solve some of those challenges. Um, for example, you can very easily wrap a piece of software into a container, deploy that on one IoT device, test it, and then be reassured that you can deploy it to thousands of IoT devices at the same time. And that's very easy. And that is the idea behind WebAssembly, right? That you build, in a way, micro-containers that uh, have an, an idea 
or are, are containerized are secure by definition um, and can run, for example, on, I had Tyler McMullen here from, from Fastly um, in the podcast, can run on Fastly's cloud, on Fastly's edge in a way, right? Um, so WebAssembly has part of part of that, but partly it's also about being able to run on um, web technologies that you wouldn't previously be able to do. So for example, uh, using JavaScript, running things on a JavaScript um, virtual machine. So it just kind of, again, it's, it's about expanding the different environments that you can run containers in. Okay, so a Raspberry Pi um, was a good example for um, running containers on the edge in a way, right? Um, but there are more, for sure, there are more yeah. and more companies uh, like offering that that edge computing as a service, and I, I think Fastly is one of them. Cloudflare is one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, they just they just offer their network and um, uh, their their um, their nodes. Uh, so that you can run like micro containers on them, right? Mm. I think this is still very, very early, very nascent technology. Mm. Um, so far, I don't think I have seen it deployed at a large scale. Everything that I've seen so far seems to be quite small, but this is definitely one of the trends that we see happening over 2021 and probably a couple more years into the future. Yeah, I mean, the idea of um, for example, switching something on the edge is kind of uh, a nice one, right? If you have, if you, let's say you're, you're, you're at Cloudflare or Fastly or whatever other um, uh, provider there, and you can just install an extension, which just filters the traffic of your website. Um, and you don't have anything to do with that. You can just install a security add-on and then, I don't know, scrapers are filtered out or something like that. And I guess that's the 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 idea of them <laughs> and um it's just very hard to explain if you come from traditional web apps uh where everything is happening on your servers right mm, that is a very neat example actually yeah it's a very cool example yeah but i i, I was searching for examples like <laughs> for 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 a while <laughs> now <laughs> and it's always it's very hard if you if you talk to those guys then yeah. you always hear very abstract things and um yeah <laughs> yeah well, as you say as well, so much of um, cloud native is still built with the idea of it's some kind of a web service that you're building. Um, so yeah, it's just hard to find examples of things where where that's not the case. Okay, but um, stepping back from from cloud native and and towards open source um, and um, your job. How do you actually encourage companies to, to contribute to open source? Do you actually do that? Or um, do you rather say, okay, you can be an end user, you can be a contributor. I don't mind, uh, just be a member. Um, I mean, we definitely welcome anybody who wants to take part in any kind of capacity. But if a company has the... Um, the willingness to contribute more, then we definitely try and support them in whatever way possible. So for example, with some companies, this really depends on, on the company. Um, in some companies, there are legal hurdles that they need to overcome because 
perhaps their legal department doesn't have any kind of processes around open source and they need to make sure that we need to go into their legal department and talk to them and help them figure it out. Um, sometimes it's because there's no internal champions for open source. Um, people who can say, you know, open source is actually critical to our business. This is something we need to invest into and someone who can support the individual engineers to do it. Um, I find once people actually start getting into open source community work, like they can start contributing, no problem. But there's so much that needs to happen within the organization first before they can get to that point. And that's where we try and come in and help out where we can. And um, I think it's also important to educate uh, companies around the complexity of open source. I mean, in a way, it is a lot of effort, right? It is. Um, I, I saw it at, at Zalando, for example, they, they are contributors and they have very nice open source projects, but I still see uh, or saw how much effort it is to actually publish something. Um, mm, is that the mm, reason why you yeah. more and more see commercial open source publishers because the quality um, turned out to be very important um, or? I, I don't know. I don't think it's so much about quality, but for for end users, open source is not, go, is not contributing to their business value directly. So it's harder to describe, you know, if you are a, a if you are Adidas and you're selling shoes, Anytime that engineers are working on open source, in some way, takes time away from building infrastructure and building services that can be used to sell shoes and sporting goods and so on. So it's always a little bit more of a, a fight, as you say, when you have to educate companies and tell them that um, open source is not just something that you're doing because it's good, because it's nice to do, but because if you've built your business on top of open source, it's really important that you have a say in these open source technologies. Like you want them to be around for the next five, 10, 20 years, just as Linux has. And it's important for you to get involved so that you can really determine the direction, the future direction, the technical direction of these projects. How would you say what would a company like Adidas uh, profit from open source? Is it that they might have um, a better way to hire people that are really interested in their stuff? Um, is it because they can make a business out of it or what, what would it be from your perspective? I see three main reasons why companies, particularly end user companies, um, get involved with open source. And um, the first one is typically because they are looking to meet their peers who are doing similar work as them and they want to understand how they've built um, their infrastructure and basically learn and learn from each other and share what they're doing. The second, as you say, is to help with recruiting, because frankly, if you're a good developer, you can go so many places in the world right now. And most developers want to work somewhere where um, towards a, a company which is a good open source citizen, you know, supports open source and lets developers use some of their time in open source to contribute towards open source. Um, and then thirdly, there are companies who are 
doing it for a more strategic reason. So sometimes that might be, as you say, because they want to build a new business unit around something. Typically, they have their own open source project and they want to release that to the community. Sometimes it's because they want to build a, um, a business unit or a new line of work around that open source projects project. Um, and yeah, quite often it's because they recognize that it is important for them to be involved in the technical direction of this infrastructure. So they put more, they want to put effort behind it. Mm. I, I, I sometimes feel that um, like an engineer contributing to open source is also sometimes more into, into the quality of his work because um, he or she knows that it's actually actually available for everyone and that everyone can can check the code then and um yeah it's it it makes it a bit harder and the effort maybe a bit higher but it's also a good reason to to actually open source your stuff right uh, mixed mixed on the quality i think i've seen you know obviously you get things like um kubernetes where You know, you have hundreds of thousands of contributors and everybody, everything is checked very thoroughly and, and the quality of it is um, beyond what any single company or single person could do. But hey, I have things on GitHub where I just throw it onto GitHub and say, ah, it's fine, nobody's looking at it, so uh, it's okay. So it would be bad for me to judge, judge people if, you know, you just have a hobby project on GitHub and that's fine as well. Okay, um, so uh, we we briefly spoke about diversity first, um, but I still want to want to want to hear your opinion. And as a community leader, um, you think diversity initiatives are important. Um, and do you have any 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 tips as someone who's running a community um, that our listeners can translate into their teams? Mm. Um, I really think diversity is really important. It was one of the things that attracted me to cloud native and to Kubernetes in particular, because, you know, the Kubernetes community is very, um, very actively and proudly supports diversity initiatives. And this is a big deal for someone like myself who, um, I mean, yes, I'm mostly confident in what I do and my own skills, but It's great when you go to an event, to a conference, into a company, and you see other people who are like you. Um, I mean, I worked in that startup. I was the only woman in the office for two years, right? And a lot of people would not feel comfortable in that situation. They were lovely to me. They were absolutely fantastic. But still, it is great to be around people where you can really feel um, you're not the only one, right? So in terms of uh, advice for leaders who, when you say leaders, you're thinking like engineering managers or something else? Yeah, engineering managers, yeah. CTOs. Yeah, um, CTOs. I would say, number one, this doesn't happen by itself. You need to recognize that this takes investment. Um, this can be uh, at the recruiting stage, but especially after the recruiting stage, once you get some people in, it's really important for people to feel like they are recognized and valued as an individual. Um, they're fully supported by the company. Um, 
And these things, I, I really wish I could say like, you know, just do these three things and you'll get diversity. And unfortunately it doesn't work like that. It's, it's a process that happens throughout the company. It's a question of culture and it needs to happen all the time. You know, it needs, it needs to happen something like, it's not a once a year thing and then you forget about it till next year. So it's not, not like a single item you can have on your to-do list. So now I took care of diversity and uh, now I'm done. <laughs> exactly. Like, Obviously. I, uh, I mean, I, I think this is actually a little bit disappointing myself because um, within, uh, within the Kubernetes community, there were a lot of really fantastic um, leaders who are very visible, who are women, who are um, ethnic minorities, who are... LGBTQ, et cetera, et cetera. But if you look at the developers who are the open source maintainers, you know, everyone who's ever contributed to Kubernetes or to one of the CNCF projects, um, that is about 3% women, 3%, right? It's even lower than a technology company like Google, which was probably 18% women. So we've got a long way to go. Honestly, I don't think it's certainly not a solved problem from my point of view. Mm -hmm. Yeah, from my perspective, uh, it, is, it is not solved too. So I think it starts with the moment uh, when you're told as a girl, hmm, maybe math is not your biggest strength. <laughs> and I think it's very, very important to, to understand that engineering is not about math necessarily. I mean, it can be, but it doesn't have to be. And it's also very important to say um, that girls, are the, especially, yeah, especially math is um, nothing you have to have like a special strength. And if you, if you're told, at your early early days um, that you're not good at it, then th this is maybe not too encouraging, right? I, I think it's pretty rare nowadays for people to actively say things like, you know, girls are not good at math. Like, I feel like that we're a little bit past now, but I feel like there's a lot of um, kind of pressure in the environment. As I say, if you go to... Um, If you go to something when you're a teenage girl and you see you are the only teenage girl there, you know, you get the feeling that this environment is not really, maybe not really supportive of you. And I've had people in my career as well, you know, even after I was a professional software engineer, I mean, when I was 25, maybe, um, one of the other uh, engineering managers who were I was very close with, you know, great guy, really nice, um, really good friend. And he said to me like, oh, Cheryl, you know, you may, might want to start thinking about um, how you're going to plan for a family and kids in the next few years. And I was like, would you ever have said to a 25-year-old male engineer, think about kids and babies? Like, no, no 25-year-old guy, like, starts being told at that age, like, You know, you need to think about kids and family. So there are all these little pressures, all these little mm -hmm. moments where people start to think, oh, well, you know, maybe I'm not going get to get to this leadership position or maybe I'm not going to move into this career because uh, people are telling me that it's not for me. I think that's difficult. That's really difficult. Yeah, I mean, 
sometimes you, you ask yourself, I, I have a little daughter, by the way, um, and I sometimes ask myself, so what is it that makes the difference and why is it that, um, I don't know, girls wear girls clothes and um, you then have colors where girl thing, girls think this is like a girl's color and it starts very, very, very early, unfortunately. Um, mm. And yeah, I don't know if it's bad. Um, I think maybe somewhere somewhere after that layer, you have to be careful um, to, to educate correctly, right? Yeah, I mean, it, encourage your um, your daughter and anybody else, any other um, girls and women you know, just encourage them to be, to lean into the things that they enjoy doing. So for me, for example, I really enjoyed puzzles as a kid, like number puzzles, word puzzles. Um, I love playing with all of those things. And I think that is what led me into computer science and software engineering, because that's really all it is. It's puzzle solving and problem solving. Mm. Um, and yeah, try and give people as much support as you can. Um, whenever, now that I run the Cloud Native London meetup group, um, I encourage women wherever I can to come and speak at the meetup. You know, just just give people that little, little opportunity to think, do something that they couldn't do before, couldn't do by themselves. And that can mean a lot to their career. It can mean a lot to them. And it's not a big mm. thing that you have to do. Mm. Mm. Okay. Thanks a lot. Um, mm. So I only have uh, two questions left. Um, and one is maybe easy, maybe not. Um, did you recently discover a nice tool, a nice thing that makes your day so much easier and so much more productive uh, can be a process, can be just software. I mean, you're, you're working at the Linux Foundation in a way um, that you want to wanna recommend to everyone or that, that you annoy your friends with uh, every once in a while? <laughs> um, uh, well, let me say, I don't know how, how recent you call this recently, but um, there's two things that I discovered during the pandemic And they're more processes really than tools. One of them is something I have actually done for about 10 years, but um, I did a lot more this past year, which is journaling. So I write every year for the last 10 years, I've written a document on Google Google Docs where I write down everything that happened in my, my work, career, health, relationships, um, family, You know, all these things. And it really helps you, it really helps me, I think, to get down those ideas and to paper and to really think about it and think about what to do next. Um, the other thing that is very cool, I think, is a open source tool called Anki, which is about, which helps you memorize large quantities of information. Um, again, this tool is not new. It's been around for 20 years, but um, I'm studying Mandarin Chinese at the moment. And when you study language, you just have to learn so much vocabulary, so many new sentences and phrases and words. Um, and I've been using Anki every single day for the last year. So for about an hour, half an hour to an hour a day for the last year. And I've seen very big improvements in my language skills over the last year. So highly recommend that. Okay, cool. Thanks a lot. Um, and then I still have a little surprise for you. So um, 
before the podcast, I was just uh, like looking up your your GitHub profile and um, like also looked into Kubernetes and the early versions and of Kubernetes. And I actually found a version which was I don't know. I think it is a few years ago, and it it, it featured um, a secret kubectl command called time machine. Um, and this command lets you travel in time. Um, and I just downloaded that old that old commit um, and it's now, it, it disappeared actually from Kubernetes and um, I still install it and uh, I can fire it up now. Um, and uh, I type in kubectl time machine 2015. And um, that is actually the time when you were working as a techni technical program manager at Google uh, in London, and uh, we now see us traveling back in time and um, see yourself working at Google and coding a bit, uh, doing doing project management, program management, and you now have the chance to whisper something into your ears back then. <laughs> what would it be? <laughs> um, wow, that is a great, 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 great question. Um, I mean, I guess, I mean, I guess I would say, you know, well, buy Apple stock, let's pretend, <laughs> buy, buy Google stock, buy or Amazon stock, whatever, <laughs> buy Bitcoin, exactly. <laughs> Here's the lottery numbers. Um, I would say that uh, the thing that I've, I've learned most over the last few years is how important it is to give opportunities to other people. So the more you get in your, the further you get in your career and the more success that you see for yourself individually, the more you should spread that around, the more you should bring in other people and get other people, especially when they're early in their career or if they're not very confident yet, um, give those people a small nudge, you know, give them that little opportunity to present at a meetup or to bring them into the into a community, an open source community that they haven't seen before. Um, and those little those little things are very meaningful for people. Yeah, that's what I would say to myself. Do more of that. It's a great answer as well. So um, thanks a lot, Xiao, for being on my podcast. And um, I'm very happy. It was great talking to you. Um, and uh, looking looking forward to maybe meeting you at a certain time when it's allowed again, <laughs> <laughs> uh, when it's possible again. Um, right. And um, yeah, looking forward to see what 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 um, happens at, at CNCF in the future. I really enjoyed talking to you as well, Toby. So thank you so much for having me on as a guest. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.